you look at the January 6th commission, you see a bill supported by over 30 Republicans in the House, seven Republicans in the Senate, representing the vast majority of the American people, got 54 votes, only 36 no votes, still blocked by the filibuster. In no world is that a demonstration of the filibuster doing what they thought it was. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. In this episode, I spoke with Ellie Zupnik, a Democratic political communications professional who spent many years as Senator Patty Murray's communications director. Ellie is now spokesperson for Fix Our Senate, a coalition of more than 70 organizations who are working to end the filibuster so that progressive legislation can move forward. We had a good conversation about Ellie's career and about why he feels the time has come to reform the filibuster, which is currently the tool that allows a minority in the Senate to block a broad range of legislation. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Ellie Zupnik of Fix Our Senate. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. So, Ellie, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. Ellie Zupnik. I'm spokesperson for Fix Our Senate, which is a campaign, a progressive campaign and coalition of 72 groups and growing committed to eliminating the filibuster. I am a former Senate staffer, a longtime Senate staffer, worked for Senator Patty Murray for 10 years. I was her communications director for six years before leaving in 2019. If you're a political animal, it must be a good place to be in the middle of kind of the center of politics right now, the question of the filibuster and what to do about it. That's right. I mean, it's it's something that I've been focused on for years. I saw firsthand in the Senate how broken things were and how there was just no ability to get things done. So when I left the Senate, I wanted to be a part of the work to fix things and to make things work a little bit better. So many of us knew uh, that if we won the presidency and the House and the Senate in 2020, then this would be the major issue to confront, that if Democrats didn't do something about the filibuster, there would just be no ability to do any of the things they promised on the campaign trail, from raising the minimum wage to protecting the right to vote, LGBT rights, Pro Act, and so many others. There's just no chance if the filibuster remained in place. So that I was very happy to, to work with Coalition and many others who have been focused on this for years to try to get this over the finish line. Some progress has been made over the years. In 2013, 2017, McConnell chipped away at the filibuster. But this is the moment to get that work over the finish line and finally get rid of this rule that just doesn't make sense anymore. Well, I want to return to that, but I'm always interested in the path that people take 
to positions like you have. You've been in the communications game pretty much coming out of college, right? But what kind of family did you grow up in where? Sure. I grew up in New York. I was born in Queens, grew up on Long Island. Uh, My family is a pretty conservative family. Uh, They are Orthodox Jewish family in New York, uh, currently Trump supporters. When I was growing up, they were pretty typical what we used to call Reagan Democrats. They they were Democrats, shifted over uh, with Reagan, and pretty much stayed in the Republican Party since then. So I love my family. I love my parents. We have some disagreements about politics when I go home for uh, family events and holidays. You know, we did talk about politics a whole lot. They were very interested in politics. They're very open-minded and accepted my pursuit of different politics than them. So it was definitely uh, something that influenced my political thinking, even though if I didn't agree with them when it came to their own personal politics or certainly you know, ideology, especially as we got closer to Trump years and the Republican Party shifted more and more into places that I thought were dangerous for the country. You went to Queens College, right? That's right. So pretty much near home. What did you study there? Political science and philosophy. Yeah. And at what point did you feel that divergence from the politics of your your family? I wasn't too focused on politics uh, before I got to college. I was focused on politics a little bit. I, I saw current events. I knew the things going on, but I wasn't too focused on it. I wasn't very political and certainly not politically engaged. I think when I went to college... I was very interested in political science, uh, took political science classes, heard about these different uh, theories and ways that people get to work on politics and and changing the system and, and doing that kind of work. I also did an internship for Legal Aid Society of Queens. Uh, that was kind of very formative for me. It, they have their interns. They're so short-staffed, the, the lawyers, uh, the public defenders in Queens, that they have their interns doing investigations where they send interns to uh, basically check on the police reports for their clients and run through, talk to the witnesses, go to the crime scene, see all the things that were right about what the police said, see where the police may have cut corners or not done things exactly the way they said they did in the police report. It was a formative experience for me because I saw some things that just made it very clear that the system was not working the same way for everyone. It was not an equitable system. One thing that I remember clearly is there were signs. We went to a lot of um, public housing, housing projects in, in Queens, where our clients were, where some of the crime scenes were. And there were signs posted all over there, no no loitering, no standing, no trespassing. And the public defender explained to us, you know, I was just, you know, a naive kid from Long Island who's, uh, and they explained that these are signs so that police can arrest anyone they want and they will never arrest you for it. You will never get hassled for it because me and my partner were both, you know, two college age looking white kids in these areas. We never got stopped. We never got asked. But so many of our clients on their sheet was, trespassing or loitering because police would just use those laws to stop anyone. That's just that's one example, but I got a really strong sense that the system that we had just wasn't working on so many levels, economic, criminal justice, of course, and many others. And I wanted to be a part of the, the, the change, the people working on that. Leaving college, I went to work on political campaigns. I went to work on a state-level race in New Jersey. I went to work on a lieutenant governor's race in Rhode Island, and then I was one of those you know people who were super excited about uh, President Obama and jumped on his campaign in 2007-2008. I really loved his message of going in there and shaking things up and changing the way business was done. 
And and you did some work in Washington State for Obama. Did that lead to the Patty Murray job? It seems like there's a Washington State connection there. That's exactly right. I was living in Rhode Island at the time. Uh, I worked on a Rhode Island lieutenant governor's race I mentioned. So I was living in Providence. So they sent me first to the Rhode Island primary, which is a March 2008 primary. Secretary Clinton whooped us, at that, I remember, uh, in, one, in that primary. But President Obama, of course, won, won the campaign overall. And then they sent me to Washington State randomly. It was at the time Washington State had just come off a very close governor's race. I think Governor Gregoire beat Dino Rossi by 530-something votes, I think, if I remember correctly. They had a list of battleground states. I could be slightly off on this, but I believe that Washington State at the time was 11th on their list of 11 battleground states. They considered it purple enough. It's gotten a whole lot more blue, but back then it was still you know, purpley. So purple-ish at least. So they sent staff there. They sent, they put money there for TV. So I was one of a small team that they sent there. I was deputy press secretary in the Washington state office. So pretty much the lowest level press staffer on a presidential campaign out in the you know, 11th state on the list of 11 battlegrounds. Uh, but it was a fantastic experience. And, and as you alluded to, that's where I got to know a whole lot of Senator Murray people. Uh, the person, uh, her name is Alex Glass, who was communications director for Senator Murray at the time. I met her. So when I was looking for work after the campaign, I wanted to move to DC from Rhode Island. I, I really wanted to work in the administration. I was interviewing with them. I was offered, uh, I had an interview and I don't can't remember if I ended up getting the job offer, but I, I was very close and think I would have gotten the offer at the Department of Agriculture to be a deputy press secretary there. But then I got the offer from Senator Murray's office to be a deputy press secretary speechwriter, and that seemed like a, a good opportunity, and I'm very glad I took it. When you're in an administration in a cabinet job, especially at a lower level press job, you're you're a cog in the machine. You know, it's an important cog, and it's it's uh, you can do lots of important and good work. But I really appreciated the opportunity in the Senate to be able to to work on so many different things, from agriculture certainly to the economy and to civil rights. And Senator Murray was very focused on women's health and you know, local jobs. So you just you get to work on so many issues when you're a Senate staffer, especially a communications staffer who's not specialized. Uh, that, that was a fantastic experience. For people who don't know what like a comms person does for a senator, your deputy and then later the head, I guess, what did you learn along the way? What did you do along the way? What's that job? The job of a Senate communications aide, or really any political communications aide, is to find ways to get your boss's message out to the audiences that they need to get out to. So Senator Murray was one of those very smart members who care deeply about what her constituents think and want to make sure that she is talking to them and want to make sure that she's hearing from them. This sounds funny now in today's political age, but she can, she was and continues to be uh, among those members who care more about a headline in the Seattle Times or the Wenatchee World than the New York Times or the Washington Post. So she cared a lot about getting the message out to her constituents about what she was working on, what she was focused on, um, you know, what, what she was doing day to day, because she felt that she owed that to her constituents, and have it be a two-way forum where she was always accessible to press, always very open and going around the state to the different outlets. So our work was getting that message out and making sure that when she was on the floor, when she was busy in DC, she was still talking to her constituents back home through the press uh, and through us when needed. Why did you like that? What was appealing to you about that? 
what kept you in that job? Yeah, I loved it. Well, first thing I would say is Senator Murray herself. She is a fantastic member. She is someone who cares deeply about public service. She is someone who got into politics for all the right reasons. And again, today it sounds funny and hard to talk about and almost, you know, because politics right now has become so much of a shouting match where people who are thought of as the politicians are the people who are on Twitter saying the loudest things or are on cable news shouting and tearing their opponents down. But Senator Murray got into politics because she wanted to make a difference. She was told, I mean, the famous story about her is uh, her kid's preschool funding was cut and she went to her state capital in Olympia and, and one elected official said to her, you can't do anything. You're just a mom in tennis shoes. So she organized lots of other moms and they got that funding restored and she went to the school board and then she went to the state Senate then she went to the United States Senate and she cares about getting things done. So what I loved about working with her was that she, sure, she cared about communicating. She would never make this comparison, but but I made this comparison to Senator Ted Kennedy, someone who would go out there and be very clear about where she stood. She was progressive. She was liberal. She cared about the issues she cared about, but she would fight for the mile and then do everything she could to take as much of that mile as she can get. And if she ended up being able to move 10 feet in the right direction, she would take that and then immediately get to work on the next 10 feet. And and I love that style of politics. I think that that's what President Obama did. I think that's how he tried to work. It was fun to work on and uh, it was fun to communicate because she was able to go out there and be very honest about where she stood and be very honest about why she was there. She was there to get the best possible deal for Washington State, not just talk about it, but get it. So I really enjoyed that that kind of work in particular. To what extent did the filibuster affect your time there for good and for ill? Like uh, sometimes, you know, the filibuster is our friend and sometimes it's our enemy, sort of depending on who's in power. What was your experience with that? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and my thinking on the filibuster shifted over the years. So when I got there in 2009, I saw firsthand, albeit as a very junior staffer, but I saw firsthand the way Senator McConnell strung out the debate on healthcare and used, even though he technically didn't have the you know, Democrats had 60 votes for a brief six months, I think, from Franken swearing in in March until Senator Kennedy's passing. I forgot exactly when, but they had that window where they could break a filibuster, but it was not yet apparent what is apparent now that McConnell had realized his great political innovation was that he realized that he could block anything he wanted from the minority and never get the blame for it, that the party in power would be blamed for it. So we had a party in power that was held accountable by voters, but they didn't actually have the ability to deliver on their own. So McConnell realized if he stopped President Obama, if he showed the gridlock and the dysfunction that wouldn't bounce back to him. He wouldn't be blamed for it. Republicans wouldn't be blamed for it. The party in power would be blamed for it. And that that bore out. We saw Senator Grassley and was leading the negotiations on healthcare, strung the conversation out for months and months and months. We recently learned in President Obama's book that at some point, President Obama said, is there any anything I can give you that would get you on board? And Grassley admitted, no, there wasn't. He essentially admitted that he had been stringing them along. Of course, he didn't say that. I think President Obama said that he sheepishly said that there was nothing that would bring him on board. That was an eye-opener. It, it was clear in retrospect, but not at all clear at the time. 
to some, including myself, uh, there were those who, who, who predicted this and, and they, they should get credit, but it was not apparent to many of us at the time that Republicans had no intention of working with Democrats and that they had a new strategy. And that strategy was obstruction at all cost. Senator McConnell admitted that his highest priority was defeating uh, President Obama for a second term, stopping him from getting a second term. So I saw that play out. Uh, and you're right. I did see the filibuster used for good. I, I saw Senator Murray and others use the filibuster to hold up and sometimes stop the worst of what Republicans tried to do under President Trump and then b- before I got there under President Bush. What I saw that was really formative for me was how McConnell changed the nature of the Senate to make the filibuster a tool of partisan obstruction instead of just delay where senators would use it on their own. And then I also bought... You know, th- this is something that a lot of people talk about now, but was kind of slowly emerging over the years. The idea that uh, Ezra Klein and others talk about a whole lot about the party sorting in different ways than they have historically. Uh, Lee Drutman, another political scientist, talks about how there used to be really four parties in the country. We would have conservative Democrats and, and conservative Republicans and liberal Democrats and liberal Republicans and liberal Democrats. That doesn't exist anymore. We are fully sorted into two parties. I also bought the work of another another political scientist whose name escapes me. I think it's uh, Francis Lee, another political scientist. So I, I, I could get you the name, but wrote about how uh, fragile the over the course of American history, most of the time elections were not determinative of control. The, the, you would have years and years where you knew Democrats were going to be in control of the House, no matter what happened on election day, because they had 60 or 70 vote majorities. And same thing in the Senate for for good portions of history. So that made the stakes less high because the minority party knew they weren't going to win the next election. So they had an incentive. The only thing they could do was shape policy. But now with every election potentially swinging the balance of the chambers, they know they don't have to shape the policy now if they can block the policy, win the election, and do it their way in just a year or two years. So I think those things combined, the sorting of the parties and the fragile majorities, completely changed the nature of the Senate and made it so that the filibuster is now a de facto supermajority requirement. The minority is always going to try to stop the majority on anything meaningful, and there's just no path forward with the filibuster in place from my perspective. Why did you uh, leave the Senate staff and go out into the private world of consulting? I guess you went to Precision first. I loved my time in the Senate. I had been there approaching 10 years. I knew I had to move on at some point. It's a good problem to have, but it is hard to have an amazing job uh, when you are that young and do it for 10 years. And I knew I didn't want to be a chief of staff, so there wasn't a place that I wanted to go next in the Senate. I was working for what I thought was the best member, so I didn't want to go to work for another member. My deputy uh, at the time, uh, currently the communications director there, Helen Hare, she was ready to move up into my position and would probably have gone somewhere else uh, at some point or should have gone somewhere else if I stuck around for too much longer. So I was originally planning to leave after the 2016 election. I was thinking maybe, you know, maybe I'll see if there's anything I can do in the administration or maybe see if there's anything I could do outside at that point. 
when the voters or the electoral college had different plans for me, I decided to stick around for another two years. Uh, there was some, lots of interesting stuff going on then. We worked, you know, Senator Murray led the the hearings for DeVos and Puzder and the other nominees in the health, education, labor space. Those were really interesting to work on. She, she you know, did a lot of work pushing back against the worst of President Trump's policies and being a clear voice on that front. But I, I, I made myself a deadline. I said, as soon as the 2018 elections were over, I was going to leave because if I stayed too much longer beyond that, then I would probably want and she would probably want me to stay through her re-election in 2024 uh, because you don't want to be shaken up staff when you're heading into re-election. So uh, I knew it was the right time. It was sad. I I still miss it, but I knew it was the right time. So I left. I didn't quite know what I want to do. I went to a consulting firm, Precision Strategies, and it wasn't quite what I wanted. You know, I found myself being working on a bunch of different clients. I didn't feel like I was giving any clients my best. I think it's the nature of consulting work. Some people really enjoy it, being able to work on seven different things in a day and bouncing from one issue to another issue and one client to another. I wanted to focus a little bit more. I felt like I I just did better work when I was able to do fewer things. So I I moved away from that and and did some consulting work with progressive organizations. I did some work, you know, with groups that were aligned with what I was how I was thinking about things on issues I cared about that led me to some of this work on the filibuster front where I I have been talking to a bunch of people since I left the Senate trying to find out who was doing the work on this, wanting to find a way to get engaged and there were groups and organizations that were thinking about this. So I dove in with them uh, and got to work with this coalition that was forming called Fix Our Senate. And that really uh, was the entry point into this filibuster work. They had formed before I got there as an organization, as a campaign that was focused on shining a spotlight on how Senator McConnell was breaking the Senate. They were very focused on Senator McConnell. And when I got there, I came in as they were starting to shift, not just on the problem, uh, most specifically in in the form of Senator McConnell, but in the solution and in what needed to happen to take that weapon away from him that he uses to break the Senate and also to make the Senate work and and be a better place and deliver results for voters. So that's my path to fix our Senate. Who is the driving force behind creating Fix Our Senate? Where is that coming from? I saw the signatures on the letter, which is a good hodgepodge of small and large groups on on the progressive side. But what's the leadership? Where's that originating and how does that come to be? It's very distributed. I mean, there are a number of groups in our coalition that have been working on this for a long time. Indivisible, I mean, they're a relatively new group, but they were focused on this and have been laser focused on this for years. Communications Workers of America, uh, they've been focused on this for more than a decade. They were in the the coalition that helped drive the 2013 rules change. Uh, They they do fantastic work. Uh, Stand Up America is another new group that also is very engaged in this. There's groups like Friends of the Earth and others that have been engaged for a long time. And then other groups that are newer to this, like Brady Campaign, that care about issues that are who are now smart and savvy enough to understand that if nothing is done about the filibuster, nothing will be done about the issue they care about, in this case, gun safety. But there's other issues uh, in our coalition as well, issue groups in our coalition. So it, it was pretty distributed. Um, the, the different organizations contribute in different ways. It is a true coalition of people who are doing lots of work independent of the coalition, but then also coming together to do work with one voice through this coalition. 
What kind of entity is it? Is it, you know, is it formed as a PAC or a nonprofit? Yeah, it's a C4. So it is a 501C4. It is uh, an advocacy group, nonpartisan. So it is it is not electoral. We do not engage in any kind of electoral work, but it is ideological. It is it is a progressive organization, you know, that uh, accepts donations and but those are they're not tax deductible donations. It's a 501C4. Is it funded by the signatories to some degree or just externally? It's funded in a couple of different ways. So there's there's some resources that are contributed by the coalition members, but it also has foundation support as well. Yeah. I mean, you had talked about liking the kind of politics that Patty Murray had engaged in, which sometimes involved taking 10 feet when you could take 10 feet. And this is really a push to take a lot more than 10 feet across a whole lot of issues, all of which generally I'm aligned with and want to see happen. But does it feel to you like you're more out on a limb than your history has you or that the senator that you work for has? What's changed to have you be a strong voice for what would be such a consequential change? I don't see it as a as a real shift. I, I don't see it as a break. I see it as uh, very much a continuation because as much as I would like to say that getting rid of the filibuster is a panacea, that it will lead to perfect Senate progressive governance and legislating, it's not going to work that way. You still, in today's Senate, the 50th vote is still Senator Manchin. The 49th vote is still Senator Sinema. Even if they Democrats win more in 22, you're still talking, you know, there are a number of conservative members. We know, I mean, the sad reality of the United States Senate is that it's tilted toward Republicans and rural states, and Democrats have to win the center and even the center right in order to even dream of getting a Senate majority and, and an electoral college victory. We're, we, we are at a structural disadvantage that that's another conversation that we can have for a long time. Um, but the reality is that, that Democrats, it, it is not the case that getting rid of the filibuster, even with Democratic control, is going to mean progressives get everything they want. And you know, I, I again, I, I wish that were the case, but there are not 50 Democrats on board with every single progressive policy. So getting rid of the filibuster would unlock the door. It would make it possible to get some things done. It would start the conversation and really make it a fair fight. And it would also allow members to be held accountable because right now, senators presidential candidates can go around the country making promises. They could get full control of government, but then they could still blame the other side. And they could still say, we couldn't get it done because of the filibuster. When you make them accountable, when you make politicians have to actually deliver on their promises, if voters give them control, I think, first of all, you you might see some different promises because they know they're going to be held to account. But second of all, I think it will motivate people to actually get to work. And the other thing I'll say too, is that this this is counterintuitive, but I, I do believe this. And, I, and, I th- and there are some political scientists and others who have talked about this, that getting rid of the filibuster, I think will increase the likelihood of bipartisan work and compromise. This gets to a little bit of what we were talking about before, where right now the minority knows if they just block something they can stop it in its tracks. The train will never leave the station in two years or a year and a half or whenever. Maybe they'll be in a better situation. Maybe they'll be in control and they could do it better. They could do it in the way that they think is better. But if they know the train is leaving the station no matter what, if they know if the culture of the Senate becomes that a 50 votes uh, plus the VP or 51 votes is enough to move something and a bill has 51 votes, that train is leaving the station and then members, other senators have to choose, are they going to get left behind 
or are they going to come on board? Right now, we have a culture where even bills that only need 50, like the COVID rescue bill, they're still mired in this partisanship and dysfunction. So you have Republicans out there voting no on that, then going home to their districts and bragging about all the money that's coming from the American Rescue Plan. But I think that getting rid of the filibuster and shifting the culture of the Senate, I'm not going to promise it's going to lead to a blooming of bipartisanship, but I think it shifts the incentives and gives people like Senator Murkowski, Senator Romney, uh, Senator Toomey, those who are still among those somewhat moderate Republicans, some more incentive. Leadership has less control over them um, if they can't, if McConnell can no longer promise, stand with me and we'll just make sure this stops in its tracks. Because right now, this is something that, I, that a lot of people don't really understand about the Senate because you have to really be inside to see it. The filibusters often happen on what's called the motion to proceed, to just get on the bill to begin debate. So Republicans filibustered the January 6th commission, not when it was being debated, not after a robust debate, but they filibustered even allowing it to get to the floor for a debate. So that hurts the Senate. It poisons the Senate. It makes everything so partisan and toxic. And I think getting rid of that is is going to be an important way forward. If, as you said, the Senate is structurally tilted to Republicans because of the number of small states that are conservative, and I think it is. If we have sort of a built-in progressive disadvantage in the Senate, are we being short-sighted in removing power from the minority if, like on average, we're likely to be that minority? Well, it answers in a couple ways. First, getting rid of the filibuster only really matters when one party has full control. So let's say if Republicans win the Senate in 2022, they will still not have the presidency. They will maybe, who knows if they will have the House. If they win the presidency and the Senate in 2024, they, they still may not have the House. So even though you are right that the Senate is absurdly tilted to Republicans, the House is a little tilted to Republicans. And of course, the Electoral College is as well. It, it is not just the Senate. You need all three in order for the getting rid of the filibuster to really matter. The other thing I would say, and this is probably more important, is that there's just no choice. It is fundamentally tilted against Democrats because the thing that Republicans care about, and the reason that I think Senator McConnell didn't get rid of the filibuster in 2017 and 2018, is that they can already do the things they care most about with the filibuster in place. And what I mean by that is Senator McConnell said his highest priorities was to pack the court with conservatives. He did that. Uh, there's no more filibuster on Supreme Court nominees. Uh, Senator Reid got rid of filibuster on lower court nominees. So he can confirm conservative judges with just 50 votes. His other top priority is tax cuts for the rich. He was able to do that through reconciliation. He, he delivered big tax cuts, uh, the Trump tax cuts, without having to worry about the filibuster. So for McConnell, he can do 90%, if not more, of what he wants. And that's true for future Republican majorities as well. But Democrats, they care about policy. There are a whole lot of policies that need to be updated from minimum wage to uh, labor law and women's health and, of course, voting rights and democracy reforms. Those cannot get done without the filibuster being reformed. Massive parts of the Democratic agenda, massive parts of what President Biden campaigned on are dead on arrival unless the filibuster is eliminated. And that's just not the case for the Republican agenda. So it, it is fundamentally skewed. It is always important to think about what Republicans would do when they take power. But if you 
refuse to act, if Democrats refuse to act out of fear, there's a good chance that Republicans do those things anyway when they take power. There's a good chance they get rid of the filibuster the moment they want to. Let's say there is something they want to get done that the filibuster stands in the way of. It took McConnell about a day to get rid of the filibuster on Supreme Court nominees. He'll do the same when it comes to legislative filibuster if he wants to. That last point was the most persuasive to me of all of your points. Definitely. Like maybe we ought to take advantage of this while we have the power. I used to kind of buy the idea that Democrats are the ones that wanted to get legislation through. Uh, but when I look at the states, you know, the states that are controlled by Republicans, they're passing lots of stuff, uh, especially on democracy reform as they would see it. It's all bad, but why not? then expect that they would do exactly things like that on the federal level if they get the chance. They very well may try. And I think that that is one one reason why it is so important that Democrats not miss this window of opportunity. Voters handed them an opportunity, the, the voters of Georgia especially in, in January, handed them an opportunity to fix some of the problems and to, to react to what Trump has done and, and to fix some festering problems, some problems that have been existed for a long time that have gotten worse and worse as the Republican Party has gotten worse. And this is the moment to fix it. And if they miss this opportunity and Republicans take back the House in 22 or take back the Senate, then I think people will look back on this as a just wild missed opportunity that uh, will be hard to understand in the future. What do you think the prospects are? I mean, there have been pretty strong statements from at least two Democrats about not changing the filibuster in ways that are going to be hard for them to, to change their mind, it seems like. I feel good. I think the prospects are good. And I, I think that what happened with the January 6th commission helped a lot. Uh, and the reason I think the prospects are good is because nobody expects Senator Manchin or Senator Cinema to say, I was wrong about the filibuster. I changed my mind. I'm switching my position. That's not what we're asking them to do. That's not something I personally think they're wrong about the filibuster, both the history of the filibuster and its current use. But I'm not suggesting that that be their message. What many of us, what what groups and what people, more and more people across the country are suggesting is that Senator Manchin and Senator Cinema can say, look, I like the filibuster because I thought it promoted bipartisanship and compromise, and maybe over the years it did. But right now, it's clearly not. You look at the January 6th commission, you see a bill supported by over 30 Republicans in the House, seven Republicans in the Senate representing the vast majority of the American people, got 54 votes, only 36 no votes, still blocked by the filibuster. In no world is that a demonstration of the filibuster doing what they thought it was. So I can see them, and I am hopeful that they will, once they see that there is no path for bipartisan work on For the People Act, for example, that they will realize that there's only one path forward. I was very encouraged to see Senator Cinema and Senator Manchin implore Republicans to work with them on the January 6th commission. Their hands were swatted away, of course. I was very encouraged to see Senator Manchin uh, say afterwards how frustrated he was. I was encouraged to see him in, over the past few months, talk about how the, the filibusters changed and maybe it should be more painful, he said, for minority to filibuster. So there are signs, you know, it's important to remember that only one bill has been blocked by filibusters so far. That kicked off a new phase of this. We're going to see, uh, Senator Schumer said the Paycheck Fairness Act is going to come to the floor. That's going to be filibustered. And then, of course, the For the People Act, gun safety, uh, other bills. So I feel hopeful. And I think, you know, to me, 
what it comes down to is that it is, in my mind, inconceivable that Democrats will spend two years and do absolutely nothing to respond to the blatant attacks on voting rights in Georgia, Texas, and across the country. And there is no path to 10 Republicans on anything that would meaningfully address that. So, you know, it's it's an immovable object and an unstoppable force. And I, I feel pretty confident that the object is movable at the end of the day when when push comes to shove. So there, there are a lot of proposals short of wholesale removal of the filibuster. You sort of alluded to, to make it more painful, to cut out other types of legislation from filibuster. Do you think there's a, a compromise in there that you might support that you think would get us closer to a fixed Senate? Sure. Our position is that the filibuster should be eliminated. We think that is the easiest, cleanest, best approach that the filibuster is currently being abused and misused in ways that make the most sense to get rid of it and proceed from there. But if senators are not willing to do that just yet, for us, for me, the most important thing is that there is a way to, at the end of the day, after reasonable debate after the minority has plenty of time to air their views. At the end of the day, there needs to be a way for a majority of senators to bring debate to a close and have a vote. And so if if we're talking about a talking filibuster, a talking filibuster can't just be another opportunity for Senator McConnell to tie up the Senate for weeks and weeks and weeks without ever letting them get to a final vote. There needs to be some mechanism, whether maybe it's putting the onus on the minority. Right now, the majority has to produce 60 votes to break a filibuster, maybe it should be flipped. People like Senator Merkley and others have talked about, uh, Norm Ornstein, uh, commentator, political scientist, has talked about flipping that to put the onus on the minority and make them produce 41 votes at any given time just to preserve a filibuster. That's certainly something that should be looked at. But again, our North Star, my North Star is at the end of the day, can a majority pass a bill? And if that is the case, that's a good reform. If it's not the case, it's not a useful reform. Makes sense. How did you put this coalition together? What have sort of been the mechanics of getting people to sign on? And is that still going on? Are you still trying to, you know, roll up more groups and individuals in support of what you're doing? It is. Yeah, we're, we're growing every single day. So we, you know, before the election, we, we weren't too focused on growing the coalition. We were more focused on education. We saw our role with a lot of these groups as connecting the dots between the issues they and their members cared about and the Senate rule that was blocking any progress on it or threatened to block progress on it if Democrats won because they weren't making any progress under a Trump administration, but they had a chance if Democrats won. Uh, but we were helping them understand the brick wall that stood in the way of that in the form of the filibuster. As soon as the campaign ended, uh, we went back to all of those groups that we had talked to. We had hundreds of conversations. I think we've talked to over 250 groups at this point, conversations at, at some level, and many of them came to us, asked to join the coalition. They understood what was at stake. We're having more and more conversations every day. There are some groups that are reluctant, that have been reluctant, and, and appropriately so. They they understood what that the filibuster was something that protected them in the past, and they were, you know, a little, they were nervous along the lines of the question that you asked before, uh, what happens if Republicans win? But more and more of, of them are coming on board because they are just seeing how important this moment is, especially around these attacks on our democracy. So 
We've been slowly growing the coalition, a couple of new organizations a week. Uh, I think we're over 70 now. I expect us to you know, be at 100 in the next couple of weeks. It's been increasing at a nice clip. So anyone listening who works in an organization, feel free to reach out and, and we would love to have you on board. How does the political clock play into this? I mean, every day that passes our potentially our time in the majority and and having the presidency goes away. And this is the same thing that we saw with Obama trying to get Obamacare through. As we get closer to that midterm, do you think it gets harder to fix the filibuster? How do you think that fits into the calculation? Yeah, that's a good question. So there's two clocks to think about. The clock that I am most focused on and that our coalition is most focused on is the ticking clock around the For the People Act. Uh, We know from experts and analysts and, and policy staffers inside the House and Senate that if Congress doesn't take some action to address the voter suppression that we're seeing in states like Texas and Georgia and across the country in the next few months, then we're going to hit a point, some people say August, some people say September, where it will just be too late, where the changes that are made at the federal level can no longer impact the state elections in the 22 elections, and even more concerning will not impact 10 years of gerrymandering that will be locked in through this redistricting process that is going on right now. So that is the most important clock. And that is why we are so focused on for the People Act and John Lewis Act, because that is emergent. That is a five alarm fire. If they don't do something in the next few months, the window has closed. Sure, it's important to pass it. There's other provisions in there related to ethics and campaign finance reform and voting rights for the 24 elections. But if they don't move soon, they will throw away the opportunity to protect voters for the 22 elections and voters for 10 years uh, regarding gerrymandering. So that's the first clock. And then to your political point, it absolutely. I, I think that everyone understands, anyone who looks at politics knows that it is harder for members to do big things the closer you get to an election. It's just, it's a political reality and everything becomes more partisan. Everything becomes tinged with electoral politics. Members are out campaigning and focused on that. So yes, things can get done and things should get done. And there's a history of of big things getting done during election years, but there is also no reason to wait. Uh, And then I think one thing that I took from the last 10 years, especially the Obama administration, I think many Democrats took from that time period, is that voters want to see results. Voters don't care about process. Voters don't care about the filibuster, nor should they care about the filibuster. Voters care about the things that impact their lives and their country. They're not all that interested in how a bill got done all the time. They want to see results. And when they see results, they appreciate the people who delivered that to them, the party in power, the people who were able to take credit for it because they got it done, um, but really the party in power. And uh, we're seeing this in the polls right now where President Biden is getting a ton of credit for the American Rescue Plan. If it was bipartisan, I think you'd probably get the same credit. People appreciate the $1,400 checks in their pockets, the money that got out for vaccinations, all the money that's going into cities and states that are keeping people on the job. That's what's important. People care about results. So that's, you know, to me, uh, it's a good example. There's the old saying in in politics, uh, the, the cliche that good policy makes good politics. But I, I think that's absolutely the case here, that if Democrats focus on delivering on the things they promised, making life better for people, showing that government can actually be a force for good, not just what Republicans say, that the that it's a problem and that they should be drowned in a bathtub, uh, then I think that's the best thing they could do for themselves politically uh, as well. 
I mean, beyond the voter suppression and gerrymandering, it feels to me like some of the most dangerous stuff on that front is the potential for a legislature to overturn presidential results. I mean, there's they're opening the door to the kind of cheating that Trump tried to do last time. I think that's exactly right. If you would have said that five years ago or, or six years ago, certainly 10 years ago, people would have said you're being hyperbolic. There's no way that a major party in our democracy would take away uh, an election. Uh, but I think anyone who's looking at what Republicans are doing right now would not find that absurd at all. And I think it's 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 a legitimate concern. I don't know if it will happen, but it's certainly something given what we've seen from these states and given what we've seen from Republicans refusing to even support an investigation into an attack on their workplace. I think that is, it is not inconceivable and it's something that people should be worried about. Is there a question about the fixing of the Senate that I should have asked that I didn't? I don't think so. I think that you know people see the filibuster when it blocks legislation, and and that's an important part of of what makes it so bad. But it is also pernicious uh, in its impact and in how there are bills that never come up for votes because they know it's never going to get sixty vote bills. That I mean, Waxman Markey was a great example of this in in two thousand nine, two thousand ten, where it didn't have a shot at getting 60, it probably would have gotten a majority in the Senate. It just never came up for a vote. So when people talk about all the things that were blocked by filibuster, that doesn't even get mentioned because it was one of the many bills that just never saw the light of day in the Senate because it didn't have a shot because of the filibuster, even though it had a majority. So it has this a pernicious effect that is behind the scenes. People could put in, senators can do silent holds. They could email in a filibuster these days where they just email the cloakroom saying they will not support a unanimous consent agreement to move forward on Bill X. And that that's a filibuster. That means that that bill cannot move because the majority leader is not going to bring it to the floor and waste time if he knows it's not going to get 60, even if it has 59 senators representing 80% of the United States, which is very possible in today's Senate, that can block it. So there is more to the filibuster than just the blocking of legislation by filibuster. It, it, it permeates, it impacts throughout the day-to-day work in the Senate in a very negative way. Well, I'm really glad to get the chance to talk to you about this. Uh, anything else you want to say? No, I appreciate it. And anyone who wants to uh, learn more or sign up to join us uh, in the fight, go to fixoursenate.org or follow us on Twitter at fixoursenate, and you can get all the information, sign up for the list, and we'll plug you into the work. Thanks, Ellie. Absolutely. That was Ellie Zupnik. Ellie is at fixoursenate.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.